It's Mark 3, beginning at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at your word this morning in what might seem like a a simple and in some ways a behind-the-scenes account of what you did, we pray that we might be comforted by the incredible truths of you, of your sovereign will, and your plan unfolding according to it in all things. We ask that we might be comforted and encouraged by these things this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Now, before I start, Last week, I, uh, I gave credit to people who didn't deserve credit. I gave credit to Bon Jovi for writing a song. Apparently, Bob Geldof wrote that song, so thank you to those who have informed me of my error. I do appreciate it. don't want to give credit where it's not due. But as we look at this this morning, I've titled today's sermon, Overwhelming Opposition, with a question mark. Is this overwhelming opposition? And as we consider opposition, opposition is something that I think that we have all faced. It can come from a friend saying that what we're doing seems stupid or silly or unwise. And we might think it's a great idea and why would you not support me in that? It can come from outright hostility. It can come from the team or the person that we're playing against. And as I was writing that sentence coming from the team or person we're playing against, I realised that in my mind I'm a very competitive person. Because it's not playing with people, it's playing against people. We find opposition in all sorts of things, and sometimes competitive people find opposition a little bit more. Now, in 1972, I did research this, this is, this is true, uh, there was an Olympian, uh, it was at the Munich Olympics, a Finnish runner by the name of Lass Viren. Now, Lass was from a, a small village, uh, virtually unheard of. He was a 23-year-old police officer. He was an unknown name in the 10,000 metre race or any long distance race. His Olympic debut was in Munich. Around the halfway mark, just short of the halfway mark, so around about five kilometres at this point, he tripped and he fell. Another competitor also fell over the top of him. The other competitor fell over the top of him lasted two more laps. He was an experienced competitor. He had won the gold medal at the 4,000 metre race four, four years, uh, 5,000 metre race four years earlier. 
Now, when you have a fall in this sort of race, your, your pattern is broken, your stride is broken, your momentum's off, you have to reset your breathing patterns. There's a lot that goes into it. It's not the sort of thing that a distance runner is expected to recover from. For last to, to then be considered as a, someone who had the opportunity to complete the race, it, it's looking very unlikely. For Lass, who was doing well up until this point to be a medalist, looked impossible by human standards. Now, Lass actually did what was considered impossible. He got up, he overcame this obstacle of this fall, and, and he won the race in what was then world record time. It was the opposition which you look at and go, you can't come back from that, but he overcame it. Now, the opposition in that situation was both in Lass's body from the fall and resetting all those patterns that he had to, as well as that, that niggle in his head, it, it's over, it's done, I'll just give up, no one will blame me for it. This guy who won gold four years ago in a distance race, he quit, I can quit, there's no shame in that. As a reason, sports psychology is becoming a prominent feature in the sporting world. But we, we see this extreme case of, of opposition. But opposition isn't just within ourselves. It, it can come from people who will work to block what feels like every single positive contribution we try to make. Maybe we've had moments like this at home with different family members. We propose things that would help uh, the, the, the dynamics in the home work better. And there's always someone who says, I don't like it. And we feel like that's just pushback. We're trying to get somewhere good with this and you're just getting in my way. It's opposition. Maybe it comes from someone like that at work who for some reason just has a niggle with every single suggestion that you have. And what's wrong with this guy? It's a great idea that I put forward, but he opposes everything I suggest. It might come from people who are just Simply upset that you're a Christian, that you hold to the moral values and the spiritual truths that you do, and they push back. Sometimes opposition can come for no reason other than that you might be a perceived threat or a challenge to someone else. A few years ago, while I was still studying for the ministry, I was told by a member in a congregation that my presence at a church threatened the stability of the current pastor's ministry and I should be looking for ministry opportunities elsewhere. Now, what this person didn't know was that that very week, I'd had conversations with three different sessions in different states across Australia, looking for ministry opportunities after they'd begun, to, begun discussions with me. As I said, Cal, you, you got to go. And that was hard. And my thought was, how do I continue to minister to this person? How do I continue to treat this person with grace? When people push back against us, it's hard to continue doing what we think is right, especially treating those people well. And sometimes we lose sight of what we're here to do and what we really need to focus on. It can come from in the church in situations like that. Now, if we go into Mark, Jesus has done something just before this which has touched on what we might call a, uh, a sacred cow within Israel at the time. He didn't break any laws that God had given surrounding the Sabbath. Neither had his disciples broken any laws that God had given surrounding the Sabbath. But what Jesus had done last week was that he broke many of the man-made traditions that the Pharisees and other religious leaders had installed for the Sabbath day. Wearsby's commentary described what Jesus did in what passage we read last week as being interpreted as an act of uh, spiritual war and aggression against the Pharisees. 
And their response is to go to their war room, as we read in verse 6, and plot to destroy Jesus. This is why we read verse 6 again today, just like we did last Sunday. Even though we finished on it last week, we, we need to see this opposition to Jesus' ministry for what it is. And we need to understand further the response of the Pharisees. In effect, Jesus has just spent significant time offering people life. He has offered people forgiveness from sins. He has offered people freedom. But because that freedom comes at the expense of what the Pharisees see as a a stripping of their own authority, of their own power, of their own control, they say, no, we're going to kill this man. So they join up with the Herodians, Herod's friends. I don't know how these things makes sense. They join up with the Herodians, the supporters of Herod, the ones who are opposing Israel, meaning the Pharisees don't have as much power as they would like to have. They join with their natural enemies to try to destroy Jesus. This is the opposition that Jesus is finding. But it's not just opposition. We do find opposition, but we also see a, a, a broad mix of responses we see incredibly strong negative responses to jesus we see incredibly strong positive responses to jesus there's just this tension where do people lie with this you'd almost be worried to raise this topic at a family dinner because it could become one of those things that the family never bounces back from there's a lot going on Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting to destroy Jesus. So verse 7, what does Jesus do? Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now before, when we hear that a group of people withdrew, you imagine them being alone, there's a sense of isolation. But before we can begin to form that in our heads, Mark continues to tell us that a great multitude followed Jesus. And then he tells us who made up this great multitude. And this is about as mixed a crowd as you could imagine in those days. We look at these people. There were Jews. There were Idumeans. There were people from across the river. There were people from Tyre and Sidon, which was a region just north of Israel. They were a mixed lot of people. It was a great multitude full of lots of different people. And they were all there for the one reason, to follow Jesus. Now, this does not mean, and we should not read this as meaning, that every single person there had a saving faith in Jesus. That goes beyond what Mark tells us. But what they did do was they followed a person who they believed could heal them from all sorts of sicknesses, all sorts of problems, who could cast out demons. He could do things in terms of the medical field that, that no doctor could do. This man is one worth following. They may not quite get that he is God as well, but he is certainly an incredible man worth following, seems to be the mindset of the people. Now, in the uh, the New King James, which we read from, uh, it says they heard about how many things he was doing. Uh, I think a slightly pure translation was that they heard about all that he was doing. Now, I say that because to say how many things applies a, a quantitative value that is implied in the text, but not necessarily a, qualita- a quantitative value, which isn't necessarily clear from the text. The point remains, though, that Jesus was doing a whole heap of awesome things. He was doing incredible things. He was healing. 
He was casting out demons. He was commanding demons. He was binding demons. It was amazing works that he was doing. And the people could not get enough of it. It wasn't just Jews who withdrew from Jesus hoping that this would be the man who was powerful enough to finally overthrow those nasty Romans. To finally get their land back. It's not just the Jews doing this. This is people from all over the place who would probably agree on nothing else in pretty much every other context who could not get enough of Jesus. They agreed there was something different, something special on offer with this person. And by the time we get to verse 9, we begin to grasp that this is not only a lot of people, but we begin to see the mood of the crowd presented in what Mark says. That They're pressing in. There is a hunger. There is a desire for these people to be as close to Jesus as possible. Now remember, this all stands in contrast to verse 6. Some people could not get close enough to Jesus. Some people could not do enough to cut Jesus out entirely. In contrast to the Pharisees, these people from all over the place, and it's a sad thing, it's not the religious leaders of Israel who can't get close enough to the Saviour. They seem to be rejecting him. They're rejecting the Messiah, the one they've longed for for so long. But it's people from all over the place, even outside of Israel, which when we read Isaiah 49, shouldn't be a surprise because it's too light a thing that he should just save the tribes of Jacob, but that salvation will be offered through him to all people is what we read there. That's a paraphrase, I'm sorry. But that's what we read there in Isaiah 49. And we're beginning to see that coming to fruition here. So the mood of the crowd is, let's get as close to Jesus as possible. So close that Jesus says to his close disciples, let's get some boats ready here because we could be crushed pretty soon. We could be crushed pretty soon by this. It's not to get the boats there so they can just disappear somewhere else. It's get the boats there so Jesus can continue teaching and healing. that's what Jesus is doing he is teaching he is healing they came close to him verse 10 he healed many so that as many as had afflictions press about him to touch him just getting close enough to touch him there was healing there is teaching there are amazing things happening there are demons there are unclean spirits coming here demon possessed people coming down falling down before him, attempting to bring that, 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 that poor character reference that we've seen happen before. And you are the son of God, and Jesus sternly warning them that they should not make him known. And Mark doesn't go into it, but you assume from the way that Mark has written and what we know of Jesus from previously, that that stern warning was taken seriously. Now we might look at that and go, what does that mean for us? Jesus did amazing things. We, we have faith, we have confidence in one who does amazing things. Yeah, that, that's part of it. But before we head up the mountain with Jesus, we need to understand something. The people who had power at the time were opposing Jesus. They were opposing Jesus in very, very severe ways. But the opposition of man 
did nothing to stop God. This is something that we have to understand, that the opposition of man does not stop God at all. The opposition of the Pharisees and the Herodians isn't just a minor threat. This is a serious thing being cooked up in these secret dark rooms in the background. It was real hostility from people in positions of power who could make good on their threats, who could make good on their plotting and their planning and their scheming. They were the authorities of the land, but Jesus stood tall against that. He showed wisdom in moving to a different area, away from the immediacy of their their, their plots and their schemes, but he did not stop doing what the Father had sent him to do. And we have to understand that as we continue through Mark. Because the scope broadens. Jesus goes up to the mountain. Verse 13 on, and he called those to him who he himself wanted. He handpicked these people. Now we've seen before Jesus knowing the hearts of people. Think back to the kids talk with that police lineup. Jesus, who knows the hearts of people, calls these men to follow him. Something interesting in that is what we'll, as we'll see shortly. Jesus calls 12 dudes to come to him who are meant to do a specific job. That they were to continue teaching the things that Jesus was teaching. They were going to be sent out. And that's what apostles means. One who is sent. Specifically in the biblical context, one who is sent by God. Which is why we do not have apostles today. But these 12 were going to be sent out to preach, to heal the sick, and to have power over demons. Now, we're going to see that these guys aren't like Jesus, and they do get it wrong at times. We see jealousy, we see a bit of jostling for power among these guys at different times. But this is what they were going to do. The opposition of the political leaders could not crush this. Now, these guys were there when the Pharisees and the Herodians went away and started scheming. These guys were there in the synagogue when that man with the withered hand came forward and Jesus openly challenged the Pharisees on what's more right to do. They knew that these guys did not support Jesus. But they have seen enough of Jesus that their sense of self-preservation says it is better to be with him than with those guys over there. It is better, it is more right to be with God than to stand against God, which is wrong. These 12 men have seen enough of Jesus to take on this role. We see Simon Peter, James and John, who he named Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now, some people will say that that can also mean, in our more recent translations of Greek, fiery preacher. He calls Andrew, who is, of course, the brother of Simon Peter. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who he met as Levi a few weeks ago. Uh, he calls Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. Who would betray him? If you grew up in Sunday school, I remember being asked, name the 12 apostles, and I was I don't know. I can't tell you off the top of my head was my Sunday school answer. But there's something we get familiar with about these guys. Even if we can't name them off the top of our heads, there's a familiarity with these guys. There's 12 of them. They're going to do these things that Jesus sent them out to do, to preach, to heal, to have power over demons. We understand that. We're familiar with them. But look at these guys right here. 
These are guys being promoted to being God's people who he would send out. The only 12 of these sorts of people, plus one more in Acts. Of these people promoted to a very important role, there's a bunch of fishermen. They might not have been the most academically nuanced in their thinking, but these are the guys who are going to teach. There's fishermen. There are two brothers there who are fishermen who get the name Sons of Thunder. As I said before, Boanerges can also be translated as fiery preacher. You've got some really emotive guys here. It perhaps makes you feel sorry for their mum. Until you read about a discussion that their mother had with Jesus later on. Perhaps the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. And then, of course, got the last name of this, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. A traitor who in three years' time, who for three years was going to do great things before he turned his back on all those wonderful things that Jesus had done. You've got Matthew, who is a much-hated tax collector. There is Simon the Canaanite, also known as Simon the Zealot. You might go, well, zeal's a good thing. We prayed today that we might have zeal for the Lord in all that we do. What's wrong with being zealous? What's wrong with being a zealot? Well, what's wrong with being a zealot is that he was a zealot for all things Judaism, for all things Israel. To be called a zealot in this context is to be an extreme Israeli nationalist. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving the nation that God has blessed you in. But he is a sort of man that if you opened his closet at home, you would probably find quite literal skeletons in there. this was no mistake. Verse 13, Jesus, who knew the hearts of people, he went up the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. Broken people who we might not invite over for lunch were chosen to teach, to heal, and to have power over demons. These men are not exactly the cream of the crop. But then again, before God, who is? Now, we don't see it here in this passage in Mark, but we have the, the benefit of being able to look back at this from our vantage point in history. And these guys are doing amazing, incredible things. Some of them lived a long time. Others didn't live quite so long. But they were true apostles. They were people sent by God. They lived for him. Barring Judas with his betrayal of Christ, they lived for him. They did great things for him. They healed. They cast out demons. They taught the very things that Jesus commissioned them to do. They did. Again, that opposition that would stand in saying, do not do this. Do not support Jesus. Do not promote what Jesus is doing and teaching and saying. It all happened. The things Jesus called them to do, they did, went on to do. And then after calling these guys, these apostles to himself, Mark, the guy who's all about action and how he writes, he says this at the very end. 
and they went into a house. Maybe an odd comment. They went into a house. I think this leads us to a truth that we found earlier. That Jesus is not deterred by the opposition that he was faced by. It's not just internal or or physical weaknesses or injuries like Lass who we, we saw earlier. It's pressure from the outside, but Jesus did not buckle, he did not fold, he did not crumble, he did not melt or however else you might want to put it. And what an example is that? How good is that example? That he kept doing what God had given him to do. Now that should be something that we take on board ourselves. Because we will face opposition. John 15, the world will hate those who follow after me. We will face opposition. We will face opposition at work, we will face opposition at home, we will face opposition in our families at times. How are we going to respond to this? What this shows us is that we can be confident in Jesus. You see, the things that the apostles went out to do, it wasn't because they were good guys. We see that very clearly. They were just as broken as we are. But God enabled them to do great things for him. So we can be confident in him. We can endure all things in him. We can confidently live for him in all things. Now that doesn't mean that we should pretend that we're not going through times of difficulty when we are. It's okay to say we're having a tough time at the moment. We can pray for one another and support one another in that and point each other to Jesus and the Holy Spirit who will help us to persevere through those times. But we should never allow the opposition to become greater in our lives than the God who we live for in all things. This is the model that Jesus sets for us in the face of adversity. He continues to serve God faithfully. What is the will of the Father? I will do that. That should be us too. Even when we are faced with opposition, what is the will of the Father? What is right and pleasing and good before the face of God? And I will do that and ask God to help me keep doing that. To continue pressing on, to persevere. Not confident in ourselves, but confident in God and what God has done for us, what God will do for us, and what God has done for us and is doing in us. In the middle of all the hardships we find ourselves in, in the middle of all of that, there is peace and rest to be found with God. They went into a house. There is peace and rest to be found with God who is far bigger than all of our struggles and all of our opponents than all of our regrets, than all of our sin. So hang on to that. Trust God. Rely on God. Honour God in all that you do. And while the crowd didn't have 
what seems to be a saving faith at this point in time. How wonderful would it be if we acted at least a little bit like the crowds, that we could never get enough of Jesus and that we could never get too close to him? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we look at these two short sections here, which might not mean a whole heap to us, we still find incredible comfort, incredible assurance in you, our great God, who no opposition can contain, who no opposition can limit, who no opposition can restrict in any way, that you are the God who does all things according to your will and stands unopposed in that. And we thank you that you, in all of your might and power and awesomeness, are with us in all that we do. So help us, help us to trust you. Help us to lean on you for strength and wisdom and understanding when we do face opposition, that we might give you glory, that we might give you honour, and that we might continue to praise your name in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.